Welcome to the Road to Black Podcasts, brought to you by the BJJ Physio. The BJJ Physio helps optimize the training of jiu-jitsu athletes so they can dominate their next performance. How do they do this? They provide strength and conditioning, physical therapy, and heart rate-based conditioning through a completely remote and online management system. Meaning you can be anywhere in the world and take your BJJ performance to the next level. Contact Dr. Wesley Reed at info at thebjjphysio.online or follow him at the BJJ Physio on Instagram to find out more. Also brought to you by Roll Union Jiu-Jitsu. Visit rollunion.com and follow Roll Union on Instagram to shop the latest jiu-jitsu styles. Roll Union brings you the best fitting geese on the market, the most comfortable rash guards, and premium soft jiu-jitsu tees. Next time you're in the market for some new gear, check out RollUnion.com for the stylish and the savage. Lastly, we're brought to you by DownToRoll.com. DownToRoll.com was born out of the need for an innovative way to find BJJ training partners during the COVID-19 crisis. With gyms being shut down for many across the globe, you can register at DownToRoll.com and find small group training partners in your area. You can message partners directly from the map and interact with other like-minded players on the Down to Roll exclusive network. Go to downtoroll.com and start training again now. Thanks for supporting our sponsors, and we hope you enjoy this episode of the Road to Black podcast. Hey, welcome to the Road to Black podcast. I'm here with my man Wes and with our guest today. He's a good friend of ours. He's a, a big, big personality in the Arizona jiu-jitsu community. He's one of my instructors. Uh, I love this guy, Josh Rodriguez. Welcome in, Josh. What's up, guys? How you doing? How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Good, doing good. good. I see to you wearing you Suns jersey. Let's, oh yeah, oh yeah. Let's, let's talk and about Suns just for for just a second. Uh, so, <laughs> Suns and seven. Suns and two. It'll happen. It'll happen, man. So I grew yeah, up. Hey, I grew up. That's uh, gonna make it all the all the more all the more beautiful. Oh man, I grew up a Suns fan, you know, and uh, it's been a long time since they've been this good, you know. If this might be the best team they ever had, so you know, for me, like sports is is a. Uh, I don't know what's what's more important, like jujitsu and sports. They're like always have been. It's a bit of battle for me to find time for one of the usually like. In my younger years, I missed all the games because I was teaching every single night or training every night. Now that I have kids, I have an excuse to be home more, and then I use that excuse yeah. to watch basketball. <laughs> but it's been fun, man. Go. I'm excited. How how much are you teaching these days? Um, right now, I'm I'm teaching only five classes a week. I have two uh, two young kids at home, two a six month old and a three year old, so. It's kind of hard to get away from the house, and my wife also trains, and she probably likes jujitsu more than me. So it's kind of a battle, you know. Like one of us is gonna be home with yeah. the kids, and one of us is gonna train. And and for sure, like she's the first one to out of bed, and she's already ready. Like, hey, if you're not gonna train, I'll go train. You know, that's how how it goes. Right. So. And you're like, okay, I'll watch basketball. Yeah. Well, I try to train. You, you know, know, it's. I want to get like three good sessions in a week. On top of my yeah. my teaching, you know, because I train every time I teach. So yeah. if I can get three sessions for me on top of that, I'm good. It's been kind of tough, but I, I think uh, I think we're getting close to uh, 
to a place where I can train a little bit more, maybe even bring the kids with me. They're getting a little older, so I think uh, yeah. I'm not far off. I think well, somebody told me a couple years back, like they called it seasons of life, and right now the season I'm in is just not for me. It's more for my family. You know, my wife yeah. is a uh, oh man. She loves training and she wants to be involved, and I love to see her have fun training. So she gets first dibs right now. Yeah, that's great. It's it's hard to juggle. I mean, having small children, I I can attest, man. I don't. It's as you guys had a baby and then a second baby. It, I was just, you know, I talked to you. I'm like, man, when you have the second one, it's there's no it's time. Just so, it's yeah, there's just no time, you know, and jujitsu takes up so much of your time, at least, at least for you, this is your career as well. So you're coaching and you get to be, you know, you have to be there. And that, that even if your mindset isn't on, I know you, your mindset's on jujitsu all the time because you're mm-hmm. studying, you're always coming up with uh, techniques for teaching and, and coaching. You're very, very well respected in, in our gym in terms of an instructor. Um, everyone I've talked to loves taking your classes so you you act like you're not dialed in but you are i know Man, you. I am, so, so you know it's just I, that it's just that you're it's just that van, <laughs> it's just that vanessa is more more crazy to get those hard rounds in right oh now. yeah she wants so to she wants to she's, she's looking like, for him she's the competitor that i was when i was 26 or 27 she's that person yeah. now you know and i'm like i want to compete when i can but i know that it's gonna it's always gonna be there you know but I haven't lost yeah. any focus. Like when I'm watching the Suns game, I have two TVs always out. I bring my second TV out yeah. to watch the Who's Number One or you know whatever I can watch. I'm always gaining knowledge. Like I feel like I'm learning every day from some kind of video or podcast or something. Yeah, what's it been like to uh, um, meet your future wife in jujitsu and then? have somebody have a training partner i know i know you guys have a funny kind of back and forth in terms of she's always like josh never wants to train with me or he only wants to train at this time or what what is that experience because that's it's unique that well it's not unique because we have i think one two at least three of our other guests or two of them have people their significant others train jujitsu as well but with vanessa she started as a lower belt. You've kind of seen her come along and seen her advance. I know you're super proud of her. She's a master world champion. Um, talk about that a little bit. And, and does it create, is it ultimately, is it a, I always, cause my, my lady or nobody in my family trains. So is that a good thing? Right. So I, I shouldn't put you on the spot. No, hundred like percent. This is an easy question. You're not going to say no. This. We talk about this. She knows how yeah. to train. This is a, I think it's a super good thing because of where I'm at. Like, mentally, it's not that I'm checked out. I just, man, I spent from 20 to about 32 every year, like, people would ask me, like, hey, Josh, are you going to do the Worlds? Like, I almost get offended when you ask me the question. Like, of course I'm doing the Worlds. Of course I'm going to Europe. Of course I'm doing the Pan Ams. Like, forever, it was every tournament. My goal was always 12 tournaments a year, you know, so one per month. And if I can sneak a few more in, I would, and... And I always did, you know, I found ways to compete when, for the most part, I didn't have the money to do it. You know, I would, I would, uh, have a paycheck and it's like, okay, I can pay my rent or I can sign up for this tournament and buy these plane tickets. And then I'd be like, the rent, I'll figure rent out. So I buy the plane, plane ticket, (laughs) I sign up for the tournament, you know, and I did that for so long and I had a ton of fun. I, I don't feel, uh. I don't feel like I didn't get enough of it. Not that I'm burnt out on it or anything. I just think that, uh. 
I've had a lot of fun competing, and I do love to teach, and I love to learn. You know, I'm not really in a classroom yeah. setting much anymore, so it doesn't take away so much for me to let her kind of take the. Um, she takes yeah. the lead now. You know, she. When we think about tournaments, I'm thinking about her competing, and if I can, I will. You know, with her schedule, yeah. she works weekends, so it's kind of tough for her to pick out a bunch of tournaments. So we kind of focus on, you know, the big ones like the Pans, the Worlds, yeah. stuff like that. But uh, I mean, in home life. Depends on kind of um, where we are. Like when things are tough for us with the kids, like when we brought the baby home the first few weeks of both babies, you know, it's tough because no one's sleeping. You know, we're we're fighting over whose turn it is to get up in the morning first, you know. And, and so now she wants to train and I don't want to train, you know, or I want to go to the gym and, and she wants to go to the gym and we might have some kind of, you know, tiny little arguments about that. But for the most part, I think uh, – we found like a comfort zone where we kind of feed off of each other. So like there's a new Daisy Fresh episode on, you know, like all the stuff on on flow. She's into that stuff, you know, and for me, I don't watch the Kardashians and I don't watch the real world and stuff. That, so we can watch yeah. that stuff together and we could have conversation over stuff that I've been watching and been doing my whole life or not my whole life, but the last 15 years. So yeah, it's kind of like we, we get to blend our two worlds together with jiu-jitsu you know so it's it can be hard when it comes to training time and like dating time I'm not even mention that like there's no time for dates or anything like yeah. that but our dates yeah. are uh, we, we get a babysitter twice a week so that we can train together Tuesday and Thursday and that's our our date you know like for us that's that's good quality time together yeah that's great you guys figured it out I mean I guess it's like any any relationship, whether one person trains jujitsu or the other one just is a runner. I mean, and you have two kids, you got to like find the time for both of you. Both of you have to find the time to get that, yeah. that stuff in. I think the kids actually help too to get us. I don't think we necessarily need a lot of time apart, but with the kids, we can't really go train together. One of us has to stay home. So like for me, yeah, when I have to go teach and train, sometimes it's like this is my break. And I tell her the same thing when she goes to work over the weekend. She works overnights. I tell her this is your break from us, you know, like me and the kids. You know, you get to get away yeah. from the chaos of a, of a of a household, right? Yep. It can be chaotic. I've seen your videos with your kids. They're wild. <laughs> we were in the pool this morning at like 7 a.m. So He's a little swimmer. What, uh, for the listeners, tell, tell us a little bit, we always ask our guests, where did you start, when and where did you start jiu-jitsu and what, what made you totally fall for it? Okay, so um, I still remember the phone call that I made to, the, to Chris Lopez's gym. Chris Lopez is a black belt under Gustavo Dantes. That's where I started back in 2007. I was 20 years old and I called and I remember saying, am I too old to start jiu-jitsu? I was only 20. And I was like, am I too old to start? You know, because, you know, you see all these guys in the yeah. MMA and jiu-jitsu community and they're like 24 and they're already like super established. And I was like, how am I going to do that in four years? So, Because my mindset from the beginning was never to go get in shape or find a hobby. I thought that I wanted to compete. You know, actually, I wanted to fight MMA for the first like three or four years. That's what my goal was. So um, I started with Chris Lopez, and his rule was you had to have a blue belt before you could fight an MMA fight. So 
I was like, all right, cool, let's let's learn jujitsu. And I thought I was doing pretty good in the beginning. I was winning a lot of tournaments, but I wasn't getting promoted. It was like three and a half, almost four years. I was a white belt, and I was doing well, but I had like it, had, it was just enough time for me to fall in love with jujitsu. You know, so like I think he kind of tricked right. me into making me. He's like, no, you got to wait till you're a blue belt, and then he just wouldn't promote me until I was like, he knew he knew I was in love with <laughs> jujitsu. So now it's okay. But what ha- what happened was. Um, I got my blue belt and I was training a lot of Muay Thai and we were just doing like a really light sparring session at a, um, at a different gym and I just kind of like we would like fake a single leg and my partner just threw a knee. Not a hard one or anything but it hit me right over my eyebrow and I had, about, I had like 18 stitches and for the next year every time I would try to spar it would rip open again. So I just could not train you know, forever. So I was focused on jujitsu and I could teach and I, I wasn't teaching yet, but I was, I was involved in the classes a lot. You know, I, I wouldn't say I was teaching, but yeah. I, by the time I was three, four years in, I was like learning a lot and I was having discussions with black belts and with other instructors. So I wasn't teaching, but I was involved with a lot of the classes and stuff. So I just felt like this could be an easier path. You know, I thought maybe I could just do jujitsu and it seems like there's some money to be made nowadays. And I mean, back then, the only way you could make money was opening a gym, but that's what I wanted to do anyways, you know, so that's kind yeah. of what the focus was, and so I was uh, with Lopez at that point, and I started competing pretty heavily then, and I, that was when, I think 2009 was my first year at the Pans, and from 2009 to 2019, I think I went to every every Pans and every Worlds, you know, so and I remember my first my first time at the pans. I wore a black gi. My first instructor he used to say you couldn't wear a black gi until you were a blue belt. And he doesn't ever coach at tournaments, so he showed up at the tournament and he saw me in my black gi, and I was trying to like hide from him. And I remember he was like, "Oh, you got a black <laughs> gi." I was like, "Yeah, I thought I was getting a blue belt soon, and you never gave it to me, so I'm gonna wear the gi." But so <laughs> so I started there. You know, Did you go ahead. I was just gonna say I started there and did I was you, there did, for most of my my till about purple belt and then I ended up going over to Gustavo's. Did you always kind of see yourself transitioning into a coaching role? Yeah, I think um, by the time I was like maybe two or three stripes at blue belt, I knew I was gonna coach. I just I'm the kind of person that can't help sharing my my feelings about yeah. something, you know, like. Even back then, I'm sure I was wrong about a lot of stuff, you know. But, like, I remember I went to a Mendez Brothers seminar, and it was three hours on a leg drag. Looking back, it was kind of like – kind of a boring seminar back then. But to me, like, it was so hard to do the move. The leg drag in 2009 was – maybe 2010 was still kind of, of a new, highly technical move, mm-hmm. you know. So I remember my coach asked me to show it to the class, and it took me, like, 30 minutes. And I just don't – I could not get – the technique across like I was just like man nobody's understanding you know and, and it's such an easy technique that you should be able to teach it so I think that was when I was like alright I'm going to start paying more attention and YouTube was starting to get a little bit bigger back then so I was on YouTube every day and I was watching you know the remember the Arte Suave videos mm-hmm. the Arte Suave volume 1 and 2 there might have been a 3 yep. man I was watching those every day and I was trying to catch little clips little clips of something cool I can show from Jacare or you know, Ari Farias yeah. or something like that back then. So I kind of knew I wanted to teach. I just didn't know um, if it was possible yet. I don't think that I believed that I could do it yet. Yeah. Especially because there was, 
you you know it's just exploded in the last 10 years since then i mean and back then it was like you were probably like especially because you're a lower belt you're probably just like hey there's these black belts there's those are the ones that are qualified to teach what's you know? funny there's is there like was an only aura a, there wasn't there's a only of a, not many of them yeah yeah that's what i'm saying so to be involved like that and since the day i met you when you're a purple belt, probably when you came, when you're at GD, I mean, I could just tell your personality is always like that. So even, <clears throat> even like in a non-official coaching setting, you're always sharing ideas and going back and forth. And I think I um, wanted to coach other do, sports growing up, you know, and I just never thought that I was qualified to do it. So like with jujitsu, yeah. I was like, I'm not going to waste this chance. I'm going to get qualified, you know, and I wanted to, I wanted yeah. to teach. So I kind of saw it from the, yeah. from the beginning. When when you got your black belt, um, you actually I I was lucky enough to get my I was awarded my purple belt on the day you got your black belt. So and it was a awesome day for me to be able to see you do that. So tell what was the anticipation for that? Because I know you have at that point you'd probably been training for eight years, ten, 10 years, years, or more. Ten years. Ten years. Yeah, because we're at. Yeah. I was my I was a black belt. I'm a black belt now. Four years, so I would have been almost eleven years. Two thousand seventeen. Yeah, it was almost eleven okay. years at that point. You know, um, man. You know, I kind of did it. What did it do for you? You know, for me, it, it was like a a bunch of different emotions. You know, like on one on one stage, it was like, okay, I got to where I wanted to get to, but I didn't have what I wanted that came with it. Like, I took third place at the Europeans as a brown belt. I took third place at the Pans one year. You know, I won the New York Open as a brown belt. I won, you know, some events here and there, but I never, I always thought I was going to win a world title somehow or a Pan Am somehow, you know, and and I, I came, I lost in the Worlds in the quarterfinals like six or seven times, you know, so I just pictured myself mm-hmm. by the time I was a black belt, like going into the black belt, like fresh as like a huge name or I just, I thought pretty highly of who I was, not necessarily because of myself, yeah. but because of who I was training with, you know, like Espen Matiasin yeah. and Tommy and Orlando Montero, my roommate forever, you know, like I trained with some really high level guys, Marcio Andre and just tons of guys for years and years and years. And I just thought that, okay, eventually I'm going to, I'm going to get over that hump and win one of those big tournaments. So when I got my black belt, it was like, all right, I didn't get what I wanted, I, did, I got pretty close. You know, I fought a lot of really good guys. I beat a lot of good guys. I lost to a lot of good guys. So I knew I had the experience to be there, but it was like I wasn't sure what level I was at, you know. Because they always talk about when you get to black belt, the level is different. You know, it's like it's like going yeah. from college to the pros in different sports, right? So I wasn't yeah. sure exactly where I was. I knew I was close to kind of where I wanted to be, but... It was a. Uh, I knew it was coming because, so after my my second year as a brown belt, I lost in the fifth round at the worlds, um, and Gustavo the next day or the next week he was like, hey, so do you want to you ready for your black belt? And I was like, whoa, whoa, you can't you can't ask me that, you know that's not my decision. Yeah. <laughs> and he he was like, all right, we'll wait till next year. And then he just walked out of the room, <laughs> and I. <laughs> yeah. And I remember Orlando got his black belt that year, and me and him were roommates for years. So I was—I thought we were going to get our black belt together. So I had one more year at the at, um, brown belt, and then I ended up getting injured 
the week before Worlds, I hurt my ribs. So, like, when I fought my last year at Brown Belts at the Worlds, I lost, like, a crazy match. It was, like, 14 to 16. You know, I just could not... I could not... I had no strength on top. So, every time I would sweep this guy and he would push against me, my ribs were, like, giving out. And I would have to fall over and give up a sweep. And then I would sweep him back. And then he'd sweep me back. And uh, I just... It was kind of a... It's kind of a weird way to end, you know, feel, feeling pretty successful at the brown belt level and then losing in the first yeah. round of the world my final year. So going into black belt, I think I was just um, ready to find out. You know, I wasn't sure. I was ready to let's see, you know, let's see what it's going to be yeah. like. You just you have such high expectations for yourself because I'm sitting here listening to you going, Man, you. that's you're qualified. Yeah, you're, you're super overqualified impressive. to be the black belt. But in your mind, you're like, I should have more accolades. But but I, I you know, pictured myself that, like, that you're you're in the smaller percentage of of people that train a very small percentage that can actually talk in those re- in that realm of my anticipation was being a world champion. Yeah, you know, and I know I never <clears> got there, but I got I was right below the level that I wanted to get to. I had some really tough matches with some really good guys, and and I think that. If I went back, the one thing that I – well, I would change a lot of things. But as a competitor, the one thing I would change – and I don't know if this is advice for younger competitors or, or not. But uh, I never really focused on one technique for a long, long time. I was never a specialized grappler. Like I feel like um, yeah. some guys who are good at straight ankle locks, they pull guard, get to their single leg X, set up the straight ankle lock, and boom, they win three of their four matches like that. And me, I was like, I never, I did lapel guard for my whole brown belt career, but I, I played a different guard every year, you know, every other year. Yeah. Because I just wanted to learn everything, you know. And I thought, I, yep. I thought it was going to pay off earlier. And what actually happened was it helped me in, as, a, as an instructor. Because now. Yes, I was just going to say that. Yeah, for example, I never play spider guard ever. It's not my game. I don't really play it much. I just, I just don't, don't find myself in positions to use it. But I love to teach it. I love teaching spider guard. I love yeah. teaching uh, takedowns or passes or stuff that I don't do a ton because I feel yeah. that I'm getting better as I teach them and I have to focus more. Like if I'm showing the same sweep that I've always done well, I can just run through it. You know, I run through it and yeah. I might actually get worse over time because I'm just showing it the same way all the time. Whereas if I'm teaching like spider guard i'm super focused to give the students a good class because they're paying for a good class and i have to do my best so i I feel like i'm more invested when i'm teaching techniques that i don't necessarily do myself so if i could go back i would have been more of a specialized grappler you know i would have been a let me pull guard and get to my my specialty and then win matches like that yeah you know yeah 100 percent, man and i think it I think I was just, you took the words right out of my mouth, man. It, it, it translated well to you being an even better instructor. And, and really, you're, that's to be honest, whether you know this or not, you're known to be like so well rounded in all different aspects of the game. Like that's how we look at you as students. Mm-hmm. So I, I think about that a lot in terms of competition because I have friends that are successful competitors and they're more very focused on their game. Even even students that like take some of my classes, you know, and I so I, I I'm careful to not coach them away from what their power, you know, if they're a competitor. Like if you're not a competitor, I think you need to open up and learn. And 
whether you're a competitor or not, you need to learn all aspects. You need to be well-rounded. That's my philosophy. But if you're competing, there is something to be said about being comfortable in your positions in terms of success in competition. I mean, that straight away, you, we both, we all three can name several people we even know that just focus on one or two very strict techniques. And I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that's good for competition, but if you're, and I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind, but if that's all you're doing on the, on the practice mats, on competition, all throughout your purple, brown belt, black belt, you, maybe you're not as well. I think a really good So maybe it doesn't suit you better. I think a good example of somebody that you guys know well and um, is Rolando, Rolando Montero, one of my, my old roommate, mm-hmm. one of my best friends. When he was a blue belt, he footlocked everybody. You know, like he would have six wins at the pans and four of them would be a straight ankle lock. And I remember like telling him, like, man, it's sometimes like you don't even have to fight some of those guys because you submit them so quick. You know, I wish I could do that. But as he got to the higher levels and he saw things starting to change, he had to adapt. And now, like, if you watch him in the gym, he's usually wrestling or he's usually doing stuff that is not what he does. It's not what he's best at yeah. because he sees that you have to evolve and you have to do everything. So like, he's a great example yeah. of somebody who was a specialized grappler as a lower belt. And now, like, I think just like me, he can teach anything, you know, like he learns. Yeah. He learns Barambolo stuff. He, he learns stuff that he doesn't do all the time. And that's kind of how I think you, you have to – your mindset has to be – you have to be willing to be bad at something for a while, you know, like, like wrestling. Yeah. It took me like seven years to even learn a takedown or to be confident in one takedown because when you're bad at it, it's not fun. And then you don't want to learn it. Yeah. It's like, man, I'm just going to pull guard, yeah. you know. For like seven years, that was me. Like every year, I'm just going to pull guard until I had to teach takedowns. And I had to learn, like, yeah. okay, they're not going to stop asking me to show them a takedown. And I'm going to have to learn a couple, right. right? And then once you learn one, you get better, and then you can start building your confidence. So I, I wish as, yeah. a, as a competitor I had a little bit of both. I wish I was maybe a little more specialized. But I don't regret anything because if I won the uh, brown belt world title, you know, or the blue belt or purple belt, I don't think anybody would even know anymore. You know, like time goes by and – if I if yeah. I go and I win a big tournament tomorrow, they're going to think about that. They're not going to think about me four or five years ago. So. Yeah, yeah. As a as right. a like as a coach, how do you bring students along and and kind of balance that? Because the the tendency is, I think, all of us at one point or another go through that, like where we kind of get stuck doing the things that we're really good at, like you guys were both just saying. But then, and there's nothing wrong with developing that and spending time on something for an extended period of time but then how do you how do you kind of balance that as a coach when you look at a student and you're saying yeah he's really hitting x technique really well but you look at maybe his body type or the way that he's training and you try to push him into another system or a game and give him that kind of advice to bring him up and bring make him a better grappler you know a lot of it does that make sense yeah 100 i have i have some examples i'm thinking in my mind but a lot of it has to do with their mental like the way they the way they carry themselves in the gym because you guys know how jiu-jitsu is sometimes it can be rough when you're new you know and you're and you're learning so like i let's say i have some smaller guys or girls that aren't very aggressive and they kind of i know they want to learn the technique but they're just not going to force it to work with people like that i i like i tell them 
it's going to take a t time, but if you learn the technique every day and you don't try to just win the rounds, you try to win the technique, then you're going to then you're going to be better in the long run. Like let's say I have person A and I'm not trying to call anybody out, but it's let's say it's a guy who's not very aggressive, you know, he gets intimidated easily or he gets smashed easily. He's a smaller guy, right? With him, I'm going to tell him you need to learn the technique all the time, every day. And then your rounds, you're not looking for a victory in the round. You're looking for little victories. Like, did you get the underhook? Did you break that grip? You know, little victories, right? And then over time, as you get better, you can start to pick up your intensity a little bit because now you believe in yourself a little more because your techniques work. If your techniques aren't working, you won't have any belief in yourself, right? Then you have, you have the other guy. Let's say the guy that came in maybe has a little wrestling or football or just an aggressive guy. And like I have some wrestlers that come in and I tell them, look, if you can get from your butt to a single leg, that's all you need for the first couple years. Boom, get up from your half guard, get a single leg sweep, learn how to get the underhook on top, learn how to avoid certain positions. And those guys, I want them to compete and win. So like we focus – there's some guys in Nogi. We focus on the same thing almost every day like – of course, when I teach the technique of the class, I want them to learn. But when it comes to them, sometimes it's like, dude, can you get off your butt and get a single leg? That's all you need to learn for a while for some guys. So it just depends on the person. You know, and uh, like Vanessa is a great example. She's, she's kind of in the middle where she wants to be aggressive. But when you're not – when you're a girl and you're smaller, you have to learn the technique first. You can't just – Start trying to smash people and be aggressive and, and push people around because if you don't know the technique, none of that's going to work anyway. So it's just kind of for me, it's all yeah. about the, the personality of the person and where they're coming from and where they want to go to, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's great insight. I mean, yeah, because you're, sure. doing, you're doing a lot of coaching that's and we've talked about this before on the podcast is like. It's hard as a as a as an academy owner. Let's let's say we're blessed at our academy at GD Jiu Jitsu. We, there's several coaches there, so you have the opportunity to really see. There's a lot of eyes on the students, but as you know, you've been around guys like uh, Lopez when you first started out. Here's a guy like he's got his own academy. He's got he's responsible for everyone's progression, you know, and it's so hard. You, I, I know you, you take that to heart. And what I'm saying is you do a lot of one-on-one -on -one analysis of different people. You just talked right through a couple scenarios. That's very important for coaches, you know, and not all of them are built the same. We're lucky we we're in a good mm -hmm. group of people and instructors, but there's other places that people are just training under one person. And, and that person doesn't really care if that you're smaller or doesn't have that insight that you have that says, Hey, you need to work on this, this, and this. They might be teaching that smaller person the same exact thing as the 240 pounder. And those people don't, they aren't going to progress in the same way, learning the same exact things every day. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, one of the um, things that I always think about, I think where jujitsu needs to be, especially like I take myself back to GD four years ago, three years ago, when we had 15 to 20 like potential world medalists on the mats at one time. Sometimes the class needs to be specialized to everybody. And I got a good example. When I was a brown belt, I was teaching a lot of classes with guys who were way better than me. You know, like I had Espen and Tommy and Orlando were all living with me, you know, and a bunch of other 
random Brazilians and random guys that were coming from different countries all the time. And, and I would ask them like, Hey, how do you feel about the class? And what ended up happening was I started teaching, like, let's say we would get to the, we would do our warm up, we'd do some kind of takedown or pass or sequence or something to get warmed up. And then I'd be like, all right, guys, we're going to pull guard. I want you to get to your favorite guard and I want you to work your favorite entry. Pull guard, get into your position and then shoot an attack, whether it's a, um, uh, submission or a sweep or something because if I'm teaching half guard guy and I'm teaching spider guard guy and the worlds are coming up in three weeks and I'm making half guard guy play spider guard that's not his game you know so yeah. there's kind of not that I'm wasting his time but he needs to be focused on what he needs to be focused on to be ready for the tournament so I remember yeah. like a big moment for me was uh, I was talking with actually the same conversation happened with Orlando and Espen and they told me that they felt that my classes were really good because I didn't force them to do one thing. Like Orlando would always talk about in Brazil, you know, you show up, they, they teach the technique, you have to do the same technique everybody else is doing, and then you roll the whole time, right? And I would try to make the class work for everybody to where we can do a specific where everybody's starting in a new position. Like, okay, you're going to go to your favorite guard, person on top is going to start with the grip they want, and... Person on bottom has one advantage. We're in a three-minute round. You know, we're playing a tournament style, style specific. Yeah. So now everybody could like one guy might be in Spider Guard, one might be might be in Daily Hiva. So we're all working our own game, but it's not. I'm not forcing them to do just what I think is best for them. You know, they could play their own game. I think that's super important, and I, I like to train like that. It's not for everybody yet because as a beginner, you kind of yeah. need guidance. But I think once you're like purple belt or maybe even high level blue belt there are times when the coach kind of needs to not necessarily get out of the way but look at it as like um like a football coach you, you see a lot of older football coaches they're not out there running routes with the players you know they're not out there doing the moves sometimes the the the, the students need to do their own their own kind of that my drills but their own little mix to it you know half guard or, or mm-hmm. whatever so yeah I, I prefer that kind of training but, and I think it's good for them yeah especially leading up to a tournament that's that's key right I mean you can stop teaching like forcing stuff down those especially that group you were working with you know they didn't really need you to force any new moves down their throat they needed time to work on their own advancements and play their own game so and i I've been in the in the gym when you've done that for our class, you know. So I mm-hmm. mean, very specific things where it's I can tell you're looking to elevate that person no matter what level they're at, you know. So we we have um like our, our listeners, obviously the podcast, the road to black. So a lot of our focus is, you know, the journey to black belt, right? Um, and beyond, but that's the journey, you know, when you're starting, you're looking to get to your black belt. Right. Um, so you're, you're talking like you've, you've been fortunate. You're, you're a jujitsu nerd, you know, to, and I say that with, I say that. I use that way. word a lot. So you're, you're just, I mean, that's what we are. Like, look at us. We're talking on a jujitsu podcast. So, but you've always, since, since you're 20 years old, you've been dialed into this you have these very high expectations for yourself. You've trained with world champs, guys that are at the highest level in the sport. Let's take it back a step. And what do you suggest in terms of 
not even suggest, but let's say, um, let's say somebody that's never going to compete. We, we, you know, we, we all know these people that are in our classes. Uh, that's fine. People, people, whether you're not going to compete or you have no desire to get into that higher competitive training environment, what do you look for in terms of advancement? This is something we always ask the coaches here. Maybe not so much, hey, this is what a blue belt, purple belt, brown belt is, but what makes a black belt? I mean, this is so subjective. It's just subjective within every gym. All belt promotions are. But going back to what Gustavo said, he knew you were a competitor. And when he asked you that, it meant, are you ready to get out there as a brown belt one more time and give this a go, right? I mean, that's basically what he made you do. Um, That's not going to be the case. He's not going to say that for everyone, you know? So we have a mix of listeners. Some have competitive aspect, uh, you know, um, aspirations, some not. What, what to the regular, maybe 30, 40 year old person, not even to put an, an age on it, but somebody that maybe is not have those same goals as you, but they do want to advance. What should they be doing? Maybe not belt specific, but how do you, I know you have a lot of thought and insight on how to progress as a jujitsu athlete. So what in general can people do to keep advancing and keep building that knowledge? You know, you can go a million ways with this answer, and I'm pretty sure that I've already, I'm kind of dialed into one way of thinking now, and it's all about a positive environment. If you're not enjoying your training, if you don't like your training partners, if you don't like your coaches, if you don't want to go to the gym, it's hard. Like, for me, the times that I felt that I wasn't progressing or when I was doing like crazy weight cuts, you know, when I was cutting 15 pounds and I, I felt like I was getting tougher, but I wasn't getting better because I'm going to the gym because I don't want to get my ass kicked at the tournament. Not because I'm like, yeah. I'm excited to go, you know, it's just like, I got to get better. I got to yeah. get better. Now, especially like after my last crazy three years with my knee and the kids and everything, like I really feel that I'm in probably the biggest, um, improvement phase of my career because I'm enjoying almost every class. There's a, there's a, it's rare that I'm not enjoying a class, you know, and and if I yeah. if I could go back to some lower belt days like I even heard a Tom DeBlaus uh, comment quote or something he they said if you could look back what do you regret? He was like I regret being that partner that people didn't want to train with. Being like yeah. just you, you feel like you're supposed to try to smash, like you're supposed to be super tough, you know, like no one should get mad at me if I put my shoulder in their face too hard. Like they should, people should be proud of me that I'm training that hard all the time and I want to grind and hurt myself or somebody else maybe, you know. Now looking back, I just feel that I've done so much better when I'm enjoying my time and I'm focused on uh, on the moment, you know. Like I'm not looking forward to the tournament. I'm just hit, I'm in the class and – you know, you hear this a lot from the older group at the gym. We train to get back tomorrow, not to get to the next tournament. I just want to be able to come back to the gym and train, you know, the next day. So mm-hmm. I, I feel that improvement, in in my opinion, comes the most when you're – and this could be different for a lot of people. But for me, is when you're enjoying your time or you're, you're having a good time. And for some people – some people – like that like to like my wife for example when she's locked in studying for whatever test she's doing for school or something 
she can she might not be enjoying it the same way I'm in I am enjoying, but she's locked in and she's learning like that. So everybody's a little different. For me, it's all about having fun and and I, I like I tell people all the time I go to the gym to see my friends. Sometimes you know that's what I miss about yeah. open mats. I miss hanging out with my friends. Like I don't even need to train. I just want to go sit on the wall and and watch you guys train yeah. and talk and everything. So that's what I feel the biggest improvement. Yeah, you know you you may or may not remember this. Um, and I don't know when this shift kind of happened. I've told a few people about this. Uh, I may have even told this story on the podcast uh, just peripherally. But um, I was training. I was a purple belt and I was training a lot. And I, I didn't feel like I was getting better. And I was I was like stuck. It was like a hard plateau. Training wasn't fun. I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to get better. And I think I sat on the side. I can like remember even which wall it was. And me and you were just sitting there bullshitting. And I kind of unloaded on you a little bit about like, man, I'm in a really bad spot with my jujitsu. Like this is, it's not fun. I'm not getting better. And you gave me almost exactly that same advice. And you might've even been a, you might've been a brown belt at the time. I, I can't remember exactly, but you gave me almost that exact same advice and you, it was like, this needs to be fun. What you're doing right now is you're putting pressure on yourself to get better and get better faster. And you're adding all these additional complications to your training. And really when you show up here, it just needs to be fun. And it was, it was a huge, um, it was a huge weight off my shoulders because it was an outside perspective watch good my coach was watching me train and watching me go through this and i kind of just had had enough i i kind of i kind of unloaded and um you gave me that exact same advice and uh so i guess thank you you think about it because that that's 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 advice that i have given to people even as much as recently well it's so easy we have had full episodes on that it's so easy to to Look at your peers and be like, man, Espen just won the gold. Orlando just won the gold. Marcio's number one ranked in the world. Uh, I can go down the list of guys, you know, that I'm around and they're all doing, you know, Tommy and Luan and guys that I've lived with. I've lived with multiple world champions, you know, and you see these medals on their wall and you see these trips they're going on and they got sponsors that give them this and that. And you're like, man, I'm not. Why am I not progressing? I'm not doing good. So it's easy to put that pressure on yourself and feel like I need to be better. I need to be better. And it's just it doesn't – all that stuff doesn't matter as much as you think it does. In the moment, it feels like it. But at the end of the day, like I don't feel like I've lost any respect from my peers because I won the state tournament but I didn't win the national tournament. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, not at all. That's not how it works. I mean, it's all the pressure you put on yourself. And it's everybody from the white belt that's putting too much pressure on their tournament to myself has put too much pressure to you, to high level guys, black belts. I mean, it's like, it's so true. Like that, what they say is like, it's all about the journey, you know? And that's what that, that kind of quote means is like, we've had a, we've had at least one or two podcasts where we focused entirely on this, where we just say you not to tell anybody to leave their gym, but if you are not in a good situation, the same thing. You got to find a good, and that can be very difficult in certain parts of the world and per- parts of the country where there's just no, there isn't a group setting like 
we've been fortunate to have, you know, and especially in Arizona, there's multiple, many gyms now that have that really good vibe in terms of the community a whole, but also just within the gym, you know, I mean, it, you got to find, you got to find a good place to where you want to hang out. And these are, these are people are going to become your, your closest friends. You're spending three, four, sometimes more days. I mean, I see, I see the guys in the gym more than I see anybody else in my life. I Honestly, tell people that I mean, all the time. That's just how it goes. Before before Vanessa, so, I, I was in the gym more than I saw my family, like my parents and my brothers and sister. I saw my training partners probably ten times more than I saw my like. I see my mom a couple times a year because she lives out of state, and I was at the gym yeah. three times a day every day for for seven or eight yeah. years. You know, so it's easy to it's easy to feel like. You know, you're you're so immersed in jujitsu that it's kind of hard. You're putting so much pressure on yourself because you're there all the time. You know, you're there all the time. So, it's, yeah, it should and be everybody's fun. Everybody's growing and growing and growing. You know, you're in an environment of growth. So if sometimes we, and this is also common, we always measure ourselves. You've talked about it many. You've just been talking about this whole time about measuring yourself against those other guys. But what do they always say? You should only be measuring yourself against yourself, right? I mean. As long as you're progressing, this is the long game. And we talk about that here a lot on, on this podcast just because, I, I mean, I'm, I'm an older grappler. So I, I very well recognize that you have to – it doesn't make any sense to waste your time in a place where you're just dreading to go. I mean, it's like anything. It's like if you're in a job, you're much less likely to advance if you hate your job. It's just, it's just the facts. I mean, if you're in a position – yeah, if you're in a position, you're at work where you enjoy it. You want to grow and, and, and progress, and whether it's moving up the corporate ladder or or taking over a business for someone or whatever it is, but it's got to be fun, man. And I've always been, I've, I'm, I just, I've always had that at GD. Like I've always, people always ask, like for me in particular, I'm just unique because I've always trained in one specific time frame. So that there's. People have come and gone out of that time frame, but the core, you know, the core feeling and group has always been there where, you know, you might have a night class at GD that looks completely different now versus two years ago or something. So it, it can shift, right? It can shift within your, your training career within a gym. So it, that's difficult, but I think we all, it, we're all responsible to create that vibe though. We're all responsible to, you know, and I tell, you know, one thing I tell to, my to, students all the time, especially the girls, that sometimes you have to create your trading partners. You know, like I tell my wife all the time, there's not a lot of girls that are training, especially her size. So when there's somebody there, even if they're brand new and they can't help you now, you need to put time in to make them your training partner. Exactly. Like for me, every mm -hmm. time I see somebody come in, that's like around 150, 160. I'm like, boom, I'm going to do everything I can to make that guy really good. So that I can beat him up in the future, yeah. you know, right? Yeah. That's what I want. I yeah. want to have a training partner that can give me a good round. So you should be, you should be helping everybody, and that's how you build those relationships. You know, that's how you start exactly. to make those friends, and people start to trust in you to help them. And that's probably one of the most fulfilling parts of jujitsu is when you, not only you're making friends, but people are getting something from you. You're able to provide 
something. And it doesn't mean exactly. you're an instructor. You could be a, a, a white no. belt who wrestled your whole life and you come in and you're teaching a brown belt a takedown. You know, it, it's just, it yeah. feels good to be able to give back to the gym. And then that's how that whole cycle mm-hmm. starts. Yep. The whole, the whole, every, every aspect of life, the whole thing with group learning, group advancement. We talked about this before on the podcast, you know, whether you're in business and you're working as a team, if everyone's contributing, that's, what's building that community, you know? And I'm lucky that there's a few people in, in, in the, in the morning class when I train and including my instructors. And that's one of you being one of them for years now, you know, you keep those people and we keep adding, adding people. Now there's a bigger group of morning people and they're very consistent and they like really training with those same people. And they are very close, as you know, they're, you know, those guys in the morning, they're very close knit. Not a lot of, not, I don't see anything breaking them up completely right now. And you're just going to keep building that. And that happens in gyms all over the place, or it doesn't, you know, um, Wes, Wes has talked about this on the podcast where he's experienced places that don't have that at all. Like no, actually in it's the opposite. People don't want to go back. They, they don't find that at all in those, in those groups. So, but that, that goes back to the owner of the Academy, the instructors and how they welcome and take people in and build that community within that's each class. why that's why your regular average guy let's say your your average brown belt who just who has a, a job and a family or maybe a new black belt and they don't think they could open a gym to be honest it's not always about your level of technique it's about how much do the students think you care about them you know because like I, I didn't know anything 100%. right I didn't know anything about leg locks a couple years ago but I can learn them I've been learning them. So yeah. if I had if I if I had my own academy and I was missing something, you could always add. I could always get better yeah. at the technique. But you can't become a better person. Or you can't become a better person, but if you're that if you're a better person from the beginning, that's how you're gonna get students. You know, like there are some some of the some yeah. of my good friends in this sport who uh, started their academies at an older age, like my friend Paul Nava or lately Alex Martinez, they opened a gym at an older age. And it doesn't even matter, you know. They have huge uh, followings, huge classes, and they're not like they're yeah. both world champions in the masters division. But you're not going to open Gracie Mag and see them, you know. It doesn't matter because no. they're friends with their students, you know. Like their students trust exactly. them, and they don't feel like like some instructors. You just feel like oh, they just want me to pay, and I'll pay, and I don't need to be their friend anyways. But I think a big part yeah. of it is being friends with your students and your students liking you. Yep. And, and, and this, that I think that's an old school mentality too. And I, I consider you a little bit, you're older school than me. You've been doing it a lot more years than me. But what I'm saying is 10 years ago or more, you, you thought I have to be a world champion to open a gym, you know? Mm-hmm. And you probably even thought that. You're I like, felt I, like a I'm failure. Not, I have to have, yeah, I have to have these, these, but that is absolutely not what's happening nowadays. It's not. And Alex, Alex is a perfect example. He opened a gym during COVID and he's killing it. And you know why? Because he has, he's very, very much focused on people's growth and retainment of students. He's a good person. That has, by, he's a good person. By the way, not one of those new people care or know if he's ever won a, like they don't, people don't look for that in a gym. They don't do that anymore. No one's looking on Google going, yeah, you do want to see who this person is, but Someone that's new, they don't really know even the difference between a world champion and a master world champion. Do you know? I mean, it doesn't. Um, it, 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 
as long as you're in the game, you have a good reputation, people are going to be, and it doesn't, this is the same thing with personal training guy, people, people that get into personal training and, and athletic training, the ones that are successful are the ones that take a very personal approach, you know, and the ones that aren't are, you can, you can be, you can have all the accolades and you're still not a good coach or not a good leader. You know, we've talked about that on the podcast before. So I, I just think that, and someday, if you do have the time when your kids are a little bit older, when you do open your own school, I think you are especially is going, people are just going to flock to your school yeah. because you have that personality yeah. and the, the wherewithal of doing that, that you just have a great training outlook. So I mean, that, that to me is just by the wayside, especially with the, the number of gyms that are opening. I mean, there's, there's gyms that are being opened by people. Maybe they shouldn't be opening a gym. And you could look at right? that. I mean, so. That could be an intimidating thing, you know? Like for me, I know yeah. I'm going to open a gym, and I probably should have a couple years ago. You guys know I had a bunch of different setbacks from different reasons, you know? And, and it didn't happen yet. But I, like even now, I'm not in a rush. You know, I have a, a six-month-old and a three-year-old. And my wife trains, so I'm like, how am I going to teach three classes a day? I don't. When I have a gym, I don't want to have five instructors. I want to teach almost all yeah. the classes if I can, you know. So I just don't. Yeah. I don't feel worried like I used to feel because I know that I know what it's about now. I feel like if I'm if I show my students that I care and I put in the the effort, yeah. then I think almost anybody could open a gym. I, I even talk with. Like I talked with Wes about him being where he's at. He doesn't have a lot of options, you know. Yeah. And it's not always about, oh, did you win this or win that? Because we could always get better. You know, technique's always going to be there. And we can yeah, always learn. exactly. So it's just about being a good person and really wanting it, right? Like anything else? Yeah. And 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 running a wanting to run a business that's going to be the toughest part. You know, you're. I've talked to you personally about this. You know, you you're an amazing coach, but. When you're opening a business, you have to think about the other side of that. And that's what these guys do that is so amazing. Alex, in particular, has a, a nice team around him. You know, there's a few people running that gym. So they can, that benefits him, you know, because he can, he can spend more time on the mats where this person over here is going to make onboarding more people. Um, you know, that's why GD has grown so much that he, they, he has a team, you know, where back in the day it was just Gustavo doing everything. So, we talked. We we mentioned briefly, and I don't want to forget to men- talk about this, but not to end on a downer. We won't end on a downer, but tell us about your difficult year in terms of the repetitive surgeries that you went through, and like we all witnessed it from afar. Yeah, I was I witnessed it as a as a friend of yours, but kind of walk us through quickly on what happened to you and the the in- almost incredible shit that you had to go through to get back on the mats <laughs> yeah you know um it's almost not as, it's not even a downer to me anymore like my wife will bring yeah. it up and she's like you don't realize how bad things were and i'm like i do i just i'm already i'm so happy that i'm training again that i don't feel so bad like yeah. a lot of people ask me like you want to talk about it yeah i'll talk about it i'm not a, not afraid to talk about it anyway so anyways uh 2019 i was getting ready for the nogi worlds and I was just on my feet, we were wrestling, and I kind of just took a weird step, and my knee kind of buckled a little bit, and I knew something happened. I've had a, a million knee injuries. I've already, at that point, I had, I had already had surgery on both my knees to have my meniscus removed, probably like in 2012 or 13 or something like that, 14, somewhere around there. 
So when I hurt my knee, I was like, all right, another knee injury. You know, it just sucked that it happened really close to a tournament. So we're like 10 days out and I had to teach the next class. And as I'm teaching the next class, my knee popped again and I had to stop teaching. And the next day my knee was just swollen and I was like, all right, here we go again. Another, another knee injury. I had to pull out of the tournament. I couldn't do the tournament. Um, and then I waited about three months and I, my knee got a little bit less, like the swelling went away and I was able to kind of walk again. And then I took on the fight against Keishinio at Fight to Win. And I, 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 I trick myself all the time to think that I'm fine, even with injuries, because I've had so many injuries that you just like, whatever, I'll, uh, I'll be all right when the adrenaline kicks in, you know. And it's just hard to get ready for a big event. And then I had a, a kind of a tough match. I got caught in Omoplata, and he ended up, he's really good with that position. So I got caught with that. So now I had a tough match. It was for a title, by the way. It was on pay-per-view. In front of in front of everybody, you know, I was six and zero on the card, and I just lost. So it was kind of like a, it's like man, I'm I was thirty two or thirty three at the time. So I was like, how what am I gonna do? I'm getting older. I gotta win these big matches, right? And then COVID happens, and so like I'm like I'm not training well. My knees messed up. I'm gonna go get this MRI and see because for years I didn't want to get the MRI because I just didn't want to find out what was wrong. So I get the MRI, and the guy's like, yeah, your ACL is shredded, you know. He's like, it's to- totally torn. And I was like, all right, let's just do it. Because I knew, I knew that I had to do something. So there wasn't much conversation. It was like, it was like a 10-minute doctor's appointment. He was like, you need to do the surgery. I was like, fine, let's do it, whatever. So we schedule a surgery. Um, I go in, I get the ACL done. And everyone's telling me how bad it's going to be, the pain after an ACL surgery. So I expect it to be pretty bad. And I remember I got home and I was – after like two or three days, I was like, this is bad, but this is all right. I can handle this pain, you know. It's just just like any other knee injury. And then like maybe day 10, all of a sudden the pain just changes. And I remember I call, my wife works overnights and I called her at 3 a.m. I was like, something's wrong. I don't know what's going on, but my knee is just killing me like to where – that was the day that I started not sleeping. My knee was just in so much pain I couldn't sleep. The next day, I, I go to the um, to the surgeon where I had my ACL. The guy had my surgeon uh, ACL done, and his his assistant's there. And his assistant is telling me, he's like, "No, everything's fine. You know, you're just you're just in pain because you just had ACL done." I was like, "Yeah, but I was fine for nine days. All of a sudden, it's really bad." And he tried to send me home, and I remember. I'm texting my wife and I'm like, he's telling me I'm okay. He's gonna, and he's like, you need to tell him. What, and I was like, look, dude, something's wrong. I don't care what you're saying. Something's wrong and you guys need to do some kind of test. So, so they took a, um, a syringe full of, full of a fluid out of my knee and then they sent me home to, for a couple days or whatever and they were going to call me in a couple days and tell me what the results were. Well, the next day my knee swells up again. So I go to urgent care because my friend works there. And I just said, I just want you to drain my knee because it's so full of fluid. And when he drained it, he was like, the color of this is not right. So he he actually had me call the surgeon. And after a couple phone calls, they were like, you need to come back in. There's a staph infection. So I go back in and they're, they're going to do the surgery called a debriefment where they go into your knee and they're trying to like kill all the bacteria or, or whatever. You know, Obviously, I was asleep, so... I, I wake up and and they're like, all right, you're gonna be fine, you know. We'll uh, we'll 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 look at it in a couple of days. So a couple of days goes by and they're like, we have to go in for another surgery. So we go in for another surgery. I wake up and they're telling me you're gonna go home. Everything's fine. And then 
literally like that was the third. This one. was the third one. Yep. After the third one, my one day they're like, "Hey, you want to go home today?" And I was like, "Yeah, I want to go home. Can I go home?" They're like, "You need to call your wife and tell her she has to be here before a certain time for pickup because pickup was like three o'clock or four o'clock or something. Otherwise, I had to wait till the next day." So I call her and she's leaving work. She's like, "Oh, I'll come right now. I'll get out of work." And then they come rushing back in like ten minutes later. Like, "Hey, hold on, hold on." Call your wife, tell her right now you're not coming home. And I was so upset. I remember I gave her the phone. I was like, you call her. And I didn't know why yet. And she was like, oh, Mr. Mrs. Rodriguez, uh, you can't pick up your husband because he has to go back into emergency surgery right now. And I was like, what do you mean right now? Like, they're like you, the, the infection spread to, your, spread to your bloodstream and it's, it's in my heart now and it's going through my body. So as my heart was pumping the blood, the staph infection was going through my whole body. So they go in and they take the cadaver out. So now they take all the screws, everything they put in my knee. This is the fourth surgery. They take everything out of my knee and they send me back to the hospital room. And then, you know, it's like I'm still in crazy pain, you know, like for days and days that I'm taking. They give me all kinds of pain medicine. And, and then they tell me I can go home. They're like, you can go home. You're looking better. It's like three days later. But I have to come back and do the surgery again at some point. Anyways, I get home and they're like, they call me like an hour later and they say, hey, we just got some bad results on your blood. The, the staff is still in your bloodstream. We are wrong. And they were like, but just go ahead and stay home and keep an eye on it and we'll see what's going on. We'll, we'll be in contact. So now they're con – oh, yeah, and I had a port in my arm. I had a, um, this thing sticking out of my arm that I had to shoot injections of antibiotics in my arm three times a day. And it was like a 20-minute process. It was, it was horrible. So they, they – they call me and they're like, we were wrong and we'll just keep an eye on it. So a couple days later, like two days later, my skin starts to turn green. I was turning green, you know. So my wife takes me back into the hospital. At that point, they were like really worried about me. I hadn't eaten any food. I hadn't slept in days. And I was there for another three weeks or two and a half weeks or something after that day. And it got to the point where there was a Friday night. They come in the room and they're like worried about my heart rate because they had me hooked up to all kinds of things in my now my heart's going crazy. It's beating super fast, and they're like, we need to go do an echocardiogram, which is they stick this camera down your throat to take pictures of your heart. And they told me that they would know when I come out if I have to get open heart surgery or not. And they were saying the, the same night. If I, if I came out of this procedure, they only took 10 minutes, and it was bad, I was going to have to go into open heart surgery right away. So at that moment, I was like, I was like these guys are going to kill me. And I honestly thought that. I was like, I'm going to die in here. Over a knee surgery, you know, because every surgery just kept getting hell? worse and worse and worse. And like when you look in the mirror and your and your skin is green, and I haven't eaten food, I lost twenty pounds in the hospital. You know, like it was it was to the point where, I, not that I didn't care, but I'd swear I, they would bring food to me and they'd leave it on the table, and I would I would just tell leave it there, and they'd come back for lunch, and I tell them take the tray, and they take the last one and put a new one down, and then they come at night. I didn't touch the food. For days and days, and no one was even trying to make me eat more food. They were just like, "All right, we'll bring them more." And so, anyways, after the cardiogram, they said that they said that it came back pretty good. They saw they saw growth on my heart valves, but they weren't sure how bad it was, so they weren't going to make me do the heart surgery. But in my mind, all I heard was they saw growth on my heart valves. So I remember like I was crying like a baby. You know, I was like I couldn't believe, I couldn't hear anything else. I went deaf. I couldn't hear any more doctors. Or yeah. Doctors are everywhere around me, and they're talking to me about how, what the next steps are. And all I thought was, I'm going to go to surgery any minute now. You know, so like, 
I think I even like blacked out. I just woke up like the, a couple hours later to my wife calling me, and she's like, "No, no, you're not going into surgery. They're gonna, they're, we're gonna wait, I guess, you know." So, so anyways, like wow. that day goes, and then I had two more weeks there, and eventually they're like, "You can go home," and the but but I don't have an ACL, and that I wasn't gonna be able to walk correctly until I redid the surgery and they, this was September and they were saying April or May you know so I was like man I hope I could walk with my kids you know like that was the thought I was like am I going to be able to go to Disneyland with my kids and walk for three hours you know and so the whole time I'm like going to rehab and the physical rehab was really good um, but I just I felt like everybody was kind of counting me out like even the physical therapist I don't think they work with a lot of people who had an ACL removed. So they're like, hey, you can't run. They had me on the treadmill, like walking with the handle, the handles. And this is like months later, I'm still barely doing anything. And one day I was just like, I was, I remember I was with my son at the park and he took off running and I had to go chase him and to catch him. And I ran and I was like, oh, I think I could, I could run okay. And after like two weeks later, I just stopped going to physical therapy because I was feeling fine, but I was feeling that everybody's telling me I'm worse than I am. So it was like hard for me to to even think that I'm ever going to train again. You know, at the at the time I was having opportunity, people wanted me to coach for them and do seminars and stuff, and I wasn't even texting back. Like they didn't even know what was wrong with me. I just wasn't answering texts, and it felt like this was it. You know, I was like, this is it. If I I don't have an ACL, everybody knows when you're doing jujitsu, ACL injuries happen all the time, and when you have a bad knee, it's hard to do anything. So I thought that that was it, and. If I could ever just get to the mat and drill, I thought maybe I can just drill leg locks and never even walk, never stand up again. You know? <laughs> so I got back to the gym probably like January-ish, like three or four months after, and I was just barely moving, you know, and little by little I started pushing myself a little more and more, and at some point like around February or March, I was just like, screwed, I'm just going to train. And I don't know why or how it's working, but my knee feels like it's almost back to normal or, or better because I, I had my meniscus I already had my medial my medial meniscus removed but now I had my lateral meniscus removed in that last surgery so I don't know if they clean something up but my knee without an ACL feels great and I'm I'm starting to feel like I can maybe get back to a really high level again you know and I don't think I can blame the injuries at all if I don't if I don't get to a high level I think that it's just because of because of me maybe focusing on teaching or life but weird yeah. somehow my knee is kind of kind of back to normal after all that and no ACL no meniscus and I have a small MCL tear in there too so I don't know how it all worked out but it did somehow <laughs> I don't know either man yeah cause you know one of the things You're I forgot to mention I... I was septic during this whole time I went septic I don't, I don't really, that term is hard for me to understand but they can't, everybody keeps reminding me, like, you were septic. You could have died, you know. And now looking yeah. back, it's like, man, I feel fine. Every, I feel better than ever, you know. It's, it's just happened that way, but it, it worked out for the best. That's – wow. What a crazy thing to go through to not have any reconstruction of your knee. Yeah. During like, COVID. So I was doing all by myself. I was in the hospital alone. I was going to doctors by yeah. myself. You know, it was like a, yep. a crazy year, which – I've never even had anxiety in my life. I've never had anxiety. And last year, like when COVID starts, because my wife works in the hospital, she's got really bad asthma. We just had a baby and we and she was pregnant. 
like all that stuff together, it was like 2020 was just such a crazy bad year to where I just yeah. thought that somehow, some way I wasn't going to make it out of it, you know? And now looking back, it's like, it just opened up my eyes that like, I don't need to be who I thought I needed to be back when I was younger. Like I thought I had to be this world champion grappler to, to get to where I want to yeah. be. But now I think even now that I don't think I need to be that guy, I think I can still be that guy. I think I can still, like I took second at the world's, the master's world my first year going with my knee torn up. I had seven fights that day. I won six of them and I lost the final by one advantage. And then 2019, I did the world's with my knee messed up again and I won four matches and lost in the fifth round. So I think I can still get there even after after everything that's happened to me over the last couple of years. I just think it's just a, a matter of time. And like I said, I'm in a season of life right now where like the kids are more important and my wife and my family and everything. Yeah. And, and but before I know it, I'm sure like one of these days I'm going to be at some tournament. I'm going to be like, wow, I can't believe this is where I'm at. You know, like I picture myself looking up at the if you ever compete at the Worlds, when you look up at the pyramid roof and you see the uh, the way the, the way the roof looks like, I remember those feelings as a lower belt, and and I, yeah. I, I kind of miss that, and I, I I can see myself being there again at some point. Nice, well said, man. I mean, it's good to see you back. It's I don't yeah, know, man. I can't notice it when you're out the, when I watch you roll. I mean, I know you're not training like you used to be, or still, you know, you just selectively choosing your roles which yeah. is smart that's what but, i tell people you know, that's what you got to do i think one thing that people should always look at every injury i feel like i get better after every injury because when you come back from a long injury like there's a lot of things you're thinking about first off like i can't i don't have the cardio to go in there and go a 10 minute round with aaron wilson or adrian nez and go my hardest the whole time and i can't be wasting opportunities so like when i'm when i'm training now i might take the easiest route like you used to see me do like crazy intricate guards where I have seven or eight steps to get to my position. And now like I'm playing guard, I might see a little ankle pick and just get up and score the two points. Like it's just, I'm picking better moves. I think my, uh, I always say jujitsu is about high level, fast decision making. And I think my decision making is so much clearer now because I'm not, I, I'm not, relying on my athletic ability as much and I'm just picking what's there. I'm taking what the what they give me, you know, so that's helped yeah. me a ton. Well said, man. Awesome, man. Been great, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. I think we'll just end it on that note, knowing that you're back. Um 2021's been a lot better than 2020 and I, th- I think, I mean, I'm just excited to see where you guys, both you and Vanessa, you guys are just going to keep progressing both in jujitsu and life, creating your family and working it all together and someday having a gym, man. Yeah, I mean, the, I'm excited. I think it's all going to happen. I think this year, uh, Vanessa's going to win the Worlds. I think if I if I sign up, I got a good chance to do it. And uh, next year, I think the gym's going to open, you know, or maybe earlier, who knows? I'm not in a rush, but uh, I think yeah. the good things are still coming, you know. So I'm excited and I'm, I'm happy to be able to come on the show with you guys. Like it's been a long time since I did a podcast and I've had a few people ask me since my knee and I, I just felt like I had nothing to share, you know, like who wants to hear about injuries, right? So I was like, I don't want to yeah. do any podcast because I don't want to talk about my knee. And at the time, I just didn't know who I was as a grappler anymore because I was like, who am I now? Am I yeah. just like some injured guy? But now that I'm getting back to myself, like... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's uh, it's exciting to talk about to to move past it. You know, to to think like yeah. that's in the past. And I train with you guys, you know, and I haven't trained with you in a while, Wes, but I train with you, Paul, and and it's like we didn't really miss a beat, you know, everything's everything's how it's yeah, supposed exactly. to be anyway. So. No matter what you think, man. I mean, it's first of all, we'd love to have you on again because your insight. I mean, it, we could talk jujitsu. We haven't even touched. Oh, I know. We, I, yeah, yeah. I, that's my problem. I talk. There's a, a lot too of stuff that I talk too much. Sorry. No, that's that's great. <laughs> no, man. not at it's all. It's been yeah, great. This you've yeah, had a lot great. of a lot of great information, but I'm just going to remind you as a friend. No matter what you think of yourself and who I am, am I just this injured grappler? No, we look at you as like a, an amazing instructor, dude. So I really yeah. want to thank you personally because I'm. I swear to God, man, you've been a huge part of my my progression, and I I use a lot of what you teach every day, dude. And I I try to pass that on to other people, and I'm still going, man. I'm I'm always always anxious to get into your Friday morning class and learn some new new leg game stuff. So I like where we're going with that, and I, I appreciate you, man. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm in the same boat, man. I've 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 plucked a lot out of your game. Uh, we we've we used to train quite a bit, and man, you've you and uh, you've been a huge influence on me. Just and obviously, I told that story earlier, but there's plenty more of those um, moments, you know. And you've been just and more to come. Really, really influential on me. I, th- I think that more we're to come, have more, more, more good moments, you know. Even like with you being where you are, Wes. We've already talked about how the future is, and with videos and and the way we're talking right now yeah. we're able to share information so i think uh yeah every, all of us are just gonna keep learning and man it's not it's never gonna if you've seen like M- mikey musameki lately like he's yeah. learning a whole new game right now and to see how yeah. he's gone from that that gi grappler and now he's a totally different aspect and he's still getting better at the level he was at like we can get better yeah, for sure crazy. you know <laughs> yeah all right, brother. We will definitely have you on again. We're going to talk to you in the future about maybe something else. Maybe you'll be opening a gym, but we'd love to have you on again. And thanks, thanks again. And we will see all of you guys next week. Sons and seven. Sons and seven, guys. Sons and seven. <laughs> all right. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Road to Black podcast. Once again, please support our sponsors, the BJJ Physio. Contact Wes, he'll hook you up with some customized programming for your game. Take it to the next level. Therapy, performance, the BJJ Physio. Also, Roll Union Jiu-Jitsu. Check out the latest styles, Jiu-Jitsu, casual wear, training gear. Check them out, RollUnion.com. Follow on Instagram, at RollUnion. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and we will see you next time.